Amen. God, we sing that because we believe it to be true. We know it is true. You have declared it to be so. Uh, We praise you, Jesus. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You have proven that by conquering the grave, by conquering sin and death and Satan and bringing to life all those who place their faith in you. We rejoice in the life that you give us as your people. And we pray now, Lord, that you would continue to stir within us that new life that you would be creating in us, um, that new person that you have called us to be, making us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would do that now. We incline our our hearts to your word. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would soften our hearts, that we would receive the word that you have for us this morning. God, use this time to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. Use it to make us look more like him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and grab your seats. And uh, it is great to be with you this morning. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity to open God's Word. So if you haven't turned there already, as Matt said, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15. You can turn there. And uh, uh, I'm going to be here next week as well. And I'm going to be um, really doing a bit of a series through the end of Romans, which actually is really sweet. Um, when I was asked to come and preach, uh, I knew that I was, I was coming for a couple weeks and I was going to be able to do a little bit of a series. I, I know that uh, you guys are getting a steady stream of preachers coming through here and you're getting kind of one-off messages here and there. And for a church that's been used to a steady diet of expositional preaching, verse by verse, through books of the Bible, um, I understand that sometimes, um, as good as the one-offs can be, sometimes you're like, man, I just want to see how a book is unfolding or a passage is, is unfolding over some weeks. So I want to do that for you over the next couple of weeks. And it actually works out perfect. You see, last week, uh, Daniel preached from Romans chapter 15. And full disclosure, that was the exact passage I was going to come and preach on this morning. And providentially, in the plan of God, God decided to take this from a two-week series and make it a three-week series. So that's great news. Honestly, providence of God is a beautiful thing, and I'm really thankful that God has allowed Daniel to kind of set the scene for us. Hopefully you were here last week and you saw that the book of Romans closes Paul begins kind of his conclusion by talking about his own life and ministry. He really begins to reflect on what the Lord has called him to, this gospel ministry that God has given to him. And you see, the book of Romans is probably the greatest letter ever written, not just in the Bible, I mean ever written by anyone. Romans is an exposition of the gospel. That's what Paul sets out to do. He wants to unpack and explain the beauty, the riches, and the depth of the gospel. And he wants to pull us into that gospel. And then he wants to send us out with that gospel. And so as Paul ends Romans chapter 15 and 16, he is simply wanting to impress into us how serious this gospel ministry really is. Last week, you got a glimpse at his own personal gospel ministry, and hopefully you saw that Paul had actually fulfilled uh, that particular gospel ministry that God had given him to reach the Eastern Empire. 
He says, in effect, that he's, he's completed that part of his ministry. He has proclaimed the gospel. He has established churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum, he says. He has fulfilled this ministry, but here's what I want you to see this morning. He has fulfilled this ministry, but he is not finished with the ministry. Now, in, in our text, he's making plans for further ministry. From these plans, we can see his ministry mindset. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. For the Christian, you see, the job is never done. We never punch the clock. We have all been given the ministry of the gospel. And yes, our ministries may look different from one another. Your ministry is not going to look the exact same as the Apostle Paul. Your ministry and my ministry may look different. But God, if you are a Christian, God has entrusted to you the work of the ministry. That work of the ministry may look different in different seasons of life, where you're maybe more flexible, or God calls you to a particular location or place or time Whatever the season, you need to understand that God has entrusted to you the ministry of the gospel. And here's why this is important to understand, because ministry isn't a job that some of us simply go to. Ministry is a mindset that we as God people carry with us wherever we go. We are always a people who are on mission. Therefore, we are a people who are called into ministry Paul teaches us three important principles for living with a ministry mindset, but I want to begin by reading this text and then looking at these principles together. So let's begin by reading verse 22 all the way through the end of the chapter. Paul writes these words. He says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul teaches us here three important principles for living with a ministry mindset. First, I want you to see this. The ministry mindset pushes me to serve in strategic partnerships. It pushes me to serve in strategic partnerships. We see this in verse 22 through 24. Paul here describes a part of his ministry that I think is imperative for us to understand. Paul never viewed his ministry as a one-man show. 
He was always building relationships. Paul was deeply concerned with and connected with people. And he saw that the gospel was a gospel that brought friendship. And friendship, partnerships in life and ministry were actually a vital part of his own health and his own success when it came to the gospel. His gospel ministry at this point had prevented him from coming to Rome. That's what he says here at the very beginning. He says, for this reason, or this is the reason, excuse me, that why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Well, what's the reason? You see, Paul had never been to Rome up to this point. Paul never planted the church in Rome. He had never visited Rome. Certainly, he knew some people there. But one of the, the desires of his heart was to actually get to this church in Rome, to see them and to be with them. But up to this point, he wants them to know that gospel ministry has been the very thing that has stopped him from being able to come to them. I love this because we see the heart of the Apostle Paul. It's a church he's never been to, a people for the most part he's never met, but he had a genuine love for these people, and he realized that he had a genuine need for people in his own life. There's three things just to quickly take note of here as Paul talks about these people and this partnership with this church. First, Paul says he longed to come to them. I want you just to hear that. There's a longing in his heart. He says that he, he hoped to see them in passing. He says that he wanted to enjoy their company for a while. And let me just add a fourth. At the end of the passage there, he says that he wanted to come and be refreshed by them. He wanted to come to them to bless them, that's for sure, but he wanted to be blessed by them. Though he didn't know most of them personally, he longed for fellowship with them. You see, this kind of fellowship, this kind of relational connection, this is a byproduct of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the heart of a believer. This is evidence of the fact that the Spirit of God is within you. You see, the Scripture talks a lot about how God calls us into relationship. The gospel itself is a relational reality, is it not? The gospel reminds us that we were created for relationships. The God of the universe created us to know Him, to love Him, and to live in relationship with Him. God Himself exists in eternal relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the God who is creating us for relationship calls us not only to Himself in relationship, but to others in relationship. This is vital for our life. It's vital for our health, for our very existence as followers of Jesus Christ. I love this. It's a reminder, listen, this kind of relationship, it's a reminder that no matter what we don't have in common, there's one thing we have in common that unites us. It's amazing, isn't it? Christians oftentimes, it's a, I've traveled to a lot of different countries, I've met a lot of different Christians, but it's a really sweet reality. Christians, when they meet another Christian, you've experienced this, I know you have, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You, you may have never met the person, but the first time you meet them, it's, it's almost like a family reunion where you're reconnecting with a long-lost sibling, isn't it? It's just instantly you're drawn to them, and there's this, this love and this kinship, and that's because we have the one thing in common that eclipses and supersedes whatever else we may not have in common. 
It doesn't matter our ethnicity. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter a geography. It doesn't matter our social economic status. What we have in common is Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our lives. Amen? And so we instantly have this bond that is so unique. It's beyond anything this world can produce. It is spiritual in nature. Paul was busy in life and ministry. Oftentimes we think we're so busy that we can't have relationships. I just want you to know, Paul was a, a busy man. He was busy doing the work of the ministry, but he always prioritized time for relationships. In the busyness of life, let me encourage you, Christian, don't miss out on the blessings of friendship. This is not always easy. I understand that. Yes, life is busy. We have a lot of things preoccupying our our time and our thoughts. Maybe we're overloaded with work or kids and all kinds of different things. Some of us are, are resistant to relationships because there's a risk involved. There are some of you in this room who have distanced yourself from relationships because you've thrown yourself into them in the past and you've only turned around to be hurt by them. Maybe you've been betrayed by people that you've poured your life into. Maybe you've been vulnerable and transparent and you've had somebody turn and and slander you or, or gossip about you behind your back. Maybe you've been hurt coming out of another church context by people that you thought were supposed to be your closest and dearest friends. You feel so hurt and so betrayed, the thought of relationship seems so hard to you. And if that's you today, I just want to point you to Jesus Christ. The one who was betrayed by his closest friends. The one who is hurt more deeply than we can possibly imagine, but by people he, he poured himself into, gave himself to. And then they denied him in his moment of greatest need. What a sweet reminder, listen, that our Savior can sympathize with our pain and struggles, even in relationships. But Jesus never pushed people away. Isn't that amazing? Even the ones that hurt them, he drew them back in. He loved them. He forgave them. He sought to know them in meaningful, deep, profound ways. And that is exactly what God calls us to. And I want you to look at the benefits of this. Look at verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. You see, biblically, relationships are important because they they actually produce enjoyment in our lives. They're intended to by God. They're a gift from God to bring us a joy. But I want you to see this as well. They're also important in our life because they, they not just... They don't just bring joy. They make us more efficient in the work of the ministry. And Paul saw these twin realities. These were real friendships, but they were also strategic partnerships. Here we find Paul making plans to complete a plan that he had been working on for years. He wanted to visit the church in Rome, as I mentioned earlier. And in the restatement of his plan, we actually find a snapshot of his long-term goal and desire for the church in Rome, and that's that he wanted them to partner with him and help him as he went on a journey to Spain. Paul knew that he had to take the gospel further. There were people in the world that had still yet to come across the gospel. There were unreached people groups, and and Spain was one of those places. I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, well, that sounds like a really sweet short-term mission trip, Paul, going to Spain. That's like a short-term mission trip to Hawaii. 
but it wasn't in Paul's day. Spain was a, a disaster. It was a wreck. It, it, was, it was not a place you would go on vacation. It was a place you wanted to leave as quickly as possible. But Paul says, I want you to help me on my journey there. The help that he was looking for meant more than simply good wishes and a parting prayer. He was looking for genuine partnership. Now, listen, we live in, in a cutthroat world we live in a world that's filled with darkness and evil and, and selfishness and sin. And that means that, that oftentimes in our world, one of the things that we see frequently is that people want to use other people to get themselves ahead. I mean, you know this if you're in the business world. Oftentimes, you know, people you think love you, respect you, or, or at least appear to be interested in you are simply interested in using you to get themselves ahead, to move themselves up the, the corporate ladder Oftentimes, people in our culture view relationships in a utilitarian way. What can I get out of this? How can you help further me? But I want you to see that Paul was not using the believers in Rome to help him accomplish some kind of self-serving goal. He was involving them in the priority of the church, which is to reach all nations with the gospel. He is calling the church to, to grab a hold of the mission of the church, the great commission of the church, to go and take the gospel and to make disciples, to see lost people saved and saved people matured and matured people multiplied, all to the glory of God. He's calling them into this gospel partnership to strategically advance the cause of Christ. It's one of the reasons why I love being in the, the network of churches that we're a part of. We're, you know, we're part of a family of churches called the Great Commission Collective. It's a very fitting name. But the network of churches that we're involved in is a reminder, listen, this is so important, it's a reminder that we can do so much more together than we could possibly do on our own. We can link arms, and we do this in the Great Commission Collective, and share resources. We partner together. We, we brainstorm together. We work hard at seeing the gospel go forward and churches planted and leaders strengthened. This is true about you as a believer. Do you realize that? Do you realize that in the ministry that God has given to you as an individual, that God can do so much more through you when you are partnered together with other believers. You are never meant to be a Christian working on an island by himself or herself. You need to be surrounded with the right people. I've heard it said like this before, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Jesus kind of said this, right, didn't he? He said, bad company corrupts good character, right? And, and you know this. Parents, you know this. You know this firsthand. You've watched your kids maybe surround themselves with a peer group that is having a negative influence on their life. You know, you know they, they may say, it's not going to impact me, but you watch it rub off. You watch it. Some of us have experienced that personally. We've, we've, we've chosen those friend groups in the past. We've jumped into those kind of relationships, and it's pulled us further and further away from Christ. And I want you to see this, that the reverse is true. Right? If Jesus says bad company corrupts good character, he implies something else in the positive, doesn't he? Good company helps cultivate good character. And so one of the things you can do as a Christian is to make sure that you are pursuing the kind of relationships and partnerships in your life. They're going to not only bring you enjoyment, and it should, 
but also uh, encourage you to be pushing forward in the gospel. The best relationships you can have in your life are, are the people who care deeply about how you're doing with the Lord. They're not afraid to ask. They're not afraid to encourage you to pursue the Lord. They're not afraid to grab you and pull you along and say, let's, let's, let's storm the gates of hell for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's work together for Christ. Find those friends. I promise you, you will not regret it. And maybe for many of you in here, be that friend. Be that friend. The ministry mindset pushes me to serve in strategic partnerships. Next, look at this. It pushes me to share in sacrificial provision. It pushes me to share in sacrificial provision. We see this in verses 25 through 29. He begins by telling them about this plan that he has. He needs to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be bringing aid to the saints. The church there is in need. He has collected a gift, a love offering, financial support from churches in Macedonia and Achaia, Now he wants to deliver it to the church. The help that he was asking them to participate in is holistic. He's looking for both prayer, but he's looking for provision. And what he implies here is sharing in a sacrificial way. And I I love this because as you look at Paul's ministry, I, I love that Paul never calls people to do anything he's not willing to do himself. And that's the mark of a good leader, isn't it? A good leader is always willing to do the very things that they're calling their people to do. Paul is calling the church to be a people who sacrificially provide for those in need. And even in this very text, one of the things we see is that Paul is prepared to sacrifice greatly for the needs of others. You say, well, I don't don't quite see it in the text. What do you mean by that? Well, if Paul had done what he wanted to do initially, he would have immediately set sail for Rome. However, he first had to take this offering to the poor in Jerusalem, which he had collected from these Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia. But Paul's servant heart was about to cost him in ways both known and unknown, okay? That's often the way it is with ministry. It's going to cost you in ways that are both known and unknown, I recently, about five, six weeks ago, was uh, in Romania, and I was traveling there with one of our, our elders from our church. We were going, we have, um, years ago, now we planted a church there, helped plant a church in, in Yash, Romania, and so uh, we were being invited back to go do a, a ministry retreat with their church. And uh, if, if you've ever been to Romania, you know it's, it's, not, a, um, it's not a short journey, but I I booked us flights, the shortest flights possible, uh, two layovers. We were going to get there in 13 hours, which is actually pretty good if you're traveling to Romania from Toronto. Uh, 13 hours isn't too bad. But, but that meant this. That meant that you risked some pretty short layovers. And, uh, and, and guess what happened? Uh, one delayed flight means missed a flight, which takes a 13-hour travel day into a 23-hour travel day. And I can't sleep on airplanes. And then we get there only to find out that our bags didn't make it and we were stuck in our 23-plus-hour clothes for another 24 hours. And I thought, man, isn't ministry hard? 
What a, what a minor inconvenience, right? I mean, we look at that and we're like, okay, that's not ideal. But listen, I just, I just share that to say, like that's in ministry, that's a very minor inconvenience. Okay, big deal. What's the big deal? And it's minor, especially when you compare it to what the Apostle Paul is sacrificing in this moment right here. You see, if he went directly from where he was to Rome, the trip would have been about 1,500 miles, miles. But now, in changing his plans and in bringing this gift to the church in Jerusalem, he has tacked on an additional 1,500 miles of travel. Now, that doesn't sound bad in a day and age where we have air travel. But imagine a day and age where you're traveling by foot, by boat. I mean, he added on to his trip, think about this, and we're talking weeks, months Months of treacherous travel. We actually know that this journey was not an easy journey. It ended up coming with all kinds of pain and hardship and difficulty. You see, there were costs that were unknown to him and costs that were known. So why did he do this? Why, why would he sacrifice this much? Well, one of the things we learn from this passage is that his motivation here is primarily theological, okay? Paul is theologically motivated to make this kind of a sacrifice. You see, he's taking this offering from the Gentile church to the Jewish church, and for Paul, this had massive implications theologically. It had massive gospel implications. You can imagine the church in Jerusalem was predominantly a Jewish church. Over in Macedonia and Achaia, it's predominantly Gentile. Paul has been telling us um, throughout this letter that there is still this unique tension that exists between the Jewish and Gentile, Jews and Gentiles within the church of Jesus Christ. In the early days of the gospel and the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to the Gentile world, there was still some confusion about God's work in the Gentiles and, and how they were supposed to be incorporated into this thing called the church. There was still some division taking place. Paul is telling us here that God made these covenant promises to Israel. He's been reminding us of this throughout the book of Romans. Israel failed, but where they failed, God sent His Son, Jesus, the Messiah, to fulfill those promises which are now not only made available to Israel, but also to the whole world. We as Gentiles have been grafted into those incredible promises and yet, again, in the church back in Paul's day, there's this tension between the, the Jewish and Gentile believers. So Paul was so concerned that the Gentiles give and the, the Jews receive this offering. Why? Why? Here's why. Because it communicated the Gentiles' proper understanding of the gospel, and it communicated the Jews' proper understanding of the gospel. You see, I don't quite understand what you're getting at. You see, it demonstrated that they both understood the gospel is a gospel of grace, the, the Gentiles, in other words, are looking at the Jews, and they're saying to them, we understand that God has uniquely, had uniquely called the Jews in the past, in that old covenant era, and that all the promises of God have come through the Jewish people. Even Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, has come through the Jewish line, through these promises, and now they're saying, we understand that we as Gentiles are receiving this Jewish message, this message of hope and salvation, by grace alone. 
We, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to receive this, but God has used them. He's come through them, and now we have been reached by the generosity of God where we deserved nothing. God has given us everything. And you see, they're simply recognizing the generosity and the grace of God in the gospel. Now, here's the deal. The Jews, on the other hand, would be able to demonstrate the gospel by receiving this gift from the Gentile churches. Why? Why? Because it would be very easy be very easy for the, the, the Jews to go, you guys aren't on our level. We don't want a handout from you. We're not a part of you. But in receiving this, you want to know what they're saying? We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all equally in need of God's grace. None of us are deserving. God has been so gracious and generous with every single one of us. And if the Gentiles were unwilling to sacrifice for the Jews and the Jews were unwilling to receive from the Gentiles, it would have shown, listen, that the gospel meant nothing to either of them. All generosity should flow from our understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And while it is good that the Gentile churches were pleased to give, the fact is that they owed it to the Jews, Paul says. Says verse 27, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. This is a fascinating statement Paul makes here. They owe it to them? Paul made it clear to the church in Corinth that he was not commanding them to give, but giving them an opportunity to respond to the grace of God in Christ. They, they view this as we owe it to them. The gospel has come from them and through them. The gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We owe it to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to help them, to support them. And by the way, the church in Jerusalem was suffering at this point more than likely for the cause of Christ. They were losing everything for following Jesus. Paul actually gives a, a commentary on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We don't have time to go through it right now, but I would encourage you maybe today to read chapter 8 and, and to see he references this exact situation, and he says that their, their giving was rooted in the gospel itself. They were eager. They were hungry to give because if they looked at the gospel, one of the things they saw was that God was willing to give up everything for them, and so how could they not then give up everything for one another? This, I think, helps us understand, too, that there is oftentimes a difference between godly giving and ungodly giving. There's a difference between joy at times and obligation. A duty and delight, however, in the Christian life are not mutually exclusive. It is possible, do you realize, to actually love what you ought to do? And this branch is beyond giving. This branch is to simply living the Christian life. This is so helpful because I know many of you have probably struggled, maybe not today, or maybe it's been in the past, with this sense of duty and obligation. And you go through your Christian life and you're just checking the box. You're, you're doing what you think you're supposed to do. And, and you, you don't have much delight or much joy in obeying the Lord. And you see these things seem to be in, in, in conflict with one another. You feel like the more I try to obey God, the more it seems like he's trying to steal my joy. He's trying to strip away my fun. He's ruining my life. But the Christian life, you have to understand, is something that pairs together both joy and obligation. And the way these things to fit together is through a healthy and robust understanding of the gospel. 
You see, when we understand the gospel, we understand that God gave everything to us. It was all undeserved. Anything good we have in this life is a gift of his grace. And now, when we look there, you know, when we, when we take our eyes off our circumstances, when we take our eyes off of the, our, our own personal goals, dreams, and desires, and we instead place our eyes back on the gospel, and we're reminded that Jesus gave everything for us. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. You want to know what happens? Our heart now is filled with joy. Our heart now says, this is my God, this is my King, and now I want to follow Him. I want to be pleasing to Him because of all that He's done for me. You see, the obligation or the duty in your life now turns around and becomes a delight in your life. But if you strip away the gospel, yeah, the Christian life becomes painful. Let me give you a phrase that I think can help you when it comes to your own giving, giving in, in money, but giving in your life. Grace and gratitude guide our generosity in giving. It's a lot of G's. Grace and gratitude guide our generosity in giving. So let me ask you, how about you? How, how is this looking in your life? Do you love, do you love giving of your time, of your talents, and of your treasures for the sake of gospel ministry. And if you don't, is it possible, is it possible that you, you simply don't love the gospel the way you ought to? Is that maybe what God would be revealing in your life? The book of Acts tells us that things did not go as planned for Paul. He did deliver the offering with great success, by the way. It was received. But just listen to this. Think about this costly sacrifice. He was almost killed by an unruly mob. He escaped by night with Caesar's soldiers. Then he underwent shipwreck and deprivation before arriving in chains in Rome. Paul would never make it to Rome as a traveler on holiday. He would make it to Rome as a prisoner in chains. We don't know if he ever made it to Spain. Part of sharing and sacrificial provision is seeing that like Paul, we should remember that God's ways are not our ways. And I think this is critical because I think many of us are serving God on the basis of God blessing us. We serve God thinking that He'll have to owe us one. Or, or if I serve God, maybe my life will just get better. Maybe everything will be easier. Maybe I'll finally get a spouse, or maybe we'll finally be able to have kids, or maybe we'll finally be able to pay those bills, or maybe I'll finally get that job I've always dreamed of, or go on that vacation that I was planning, or renovate my house like I've always wanted. Maybe if I just serve God, then God will, will give me the things that I really want. We have this mentality sometimes in the Christian life that God owes us, like, Or, or we, we try to bargain with God. Some of us in here, we try to bargain with God. We, we have this barter system going with God. We're not serving him yet. What we're saying is, God, God, I'll tell you what. I will serve you or I will surrender these things to you. I will give you my life. I will give you my time, my talents, my treasure. I'll give it all to you, God, if you first do this for me. Like, God, you can have all of me if you just give me the things I really want or the, the, the things I think I deserve or the things I think I need. And it's like, it's like we think that God's up in heaven going like, ooh, that's such a good deal. Oh, 
Like God needs us. Or we're angry with God. Because life has not gone the way we expected. Because we're facing trials we never thought we were going to have to go through. Because life has been painful, heartbreaking, filled with tragedy. And we look at God and say, God, how could you do this to me? God, I'm serving you, God. How, How could you do this to me? Why is this happening to me? But you see, that is, that is to flip grace on its head. It is to assume that God owes us something and that we should get what we deserve, but none of us wants what we truly deserve. None of us deserves God's grace and kindness. He gives it to us freely. And instead, as we look at our lives and the difficulties that we face, the, the unknown costs and the known, we must view hindrances as a part of God's plan and a part of the sacrifice that He may be calling us to make for the sake of His kingdom and His glory. There is no Christian life without sacrifice. Both Christ's sacrifice on the cross to save us from our sins and our sacrifice of, of our lives to follow Him as Lord and Master. The Christian life through and through is a life of sacrifice, and oftentimes God prevents us from doing or going somewhere, doing something. We may not understand it at the time, but we must trust that it is for our good and for God's glory. Listen, the ministry mindset sees the obstacles as an opportunity. Shipwreck me? Fine. I'll preach the gospel on the the shores of the beach. Throw me in jail, that's fine. In shackles, I'll proclaim the gospel to the prison guards and all the prisoners around me. Beat me, that's fine. I'll keep preaching Christ. I'll get up, I'll walk back into the village the next day and let them know that my hope is not in this world. My hope is not in this life. My hope is in Jesus Christ. Lastly, the ministry mindset pushes me to strive in specific prayer. I love that he ends here in verse 30 through 33 with this great appeal, this appeal to pray for him. After laying out his plan to visit Jerusalem, then Rome and Spain, Paul now requests prayer on his behalf. And I think this is an incredible reminder that there is no true ministry apart from the ministry of prayer. And I just want to draw out really quickly uh, three quick principles to help us in our prayers. First, why do we pray? Three questions are going to follow with some principles in here. Why do we pray? First, I just noticed this. He he appeals to them to pray earnestly for him. This This is a word that is filled with this sense of urgency. He's urging them. He's calling upon them. He's pleading with them. Paul understands the importance and necessity of prayer in his own life and ministry. And not just his personal prayer life, he knows how dependent he is upon the people of God to pray on his behalf. And so he urges them to pray for him and his ministry. And he appeals, I love this, on the basis of two realities. Look at the first reality. He says, I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is so good. Paul is reminding them of who Christ is, he is the Lord. 
the one who possesses all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. He rules the universe for the good of his church and the glory of his name. You see, church, we pray because we are accessing the one who is able to do all things. And this is important because of verse 31. His enemies are powerful. He knows he's going to encounter difficulty. His circumstances are are challenging, but listen, so are ours. We face a great enemy. We face a great spiritual enemy who is dead set on preventing the people of God from doing what God has called them to do. But second, notice this, his appeal is based on the love of the Spirit. I love that. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit He's reaching back to Romans chapter 5 where it says that the Spirit, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts and that's the Spirit of God at work within us. This is so important for Paul's second request in verse 31. You see, Paul expects that the Holy Spirit is going to work powerfully and lovingly in the lives of these believers so that they'll receive him. Remember, he's still hoping that they're going to display the gospel by receiving this offering from the Gentiles. And so he says, look, look, I don't know how it's going to go, but I know, listen, this is so important, church, I know the one who can change and soften a person's heart. And so he says, pray that they would be soft to receive it. And guess what? Here's the good news. God answers the prayer, and they do. And this is such an important reminder, listen, that the love of God poured out in the heart of a person, it, it can change the hardest heart. It can transform the, the greatest sinner. God's done it for me and for you. He, who, who can't he do it for? I, I don't know how long you've been praying for a loved one or for a coworker or for a child or a parent. I, I don't know how long you've been pleading with the Lord, but listen, this is a charge, a reminder to not give up. Keep praying. God, soften their heart. God, do a miracle in their heart. He did it for you. He can do it for them. Amen? Don't give up hope, church. This is why we pray. God the Son rules. God the Spirit loves. God the Father is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Our ministry is worthless if God is not in it. Secondly, how do we pray? How do we pray? Well, he tells us right here. We strive. We strive to strive together with me in your prayers, he says, to God on my behalf. The word here invokes laboring. It is toilsome. This is, this is blood, sweat, and tears kind of language. You say, why? why does he use this word? I think it's very simple because it reminds us that our prayer is hard work. It will be costly. It doesn't come easily. Prayer is one of the easiest disciplines to neglect and one of the hardest disciplines to practice. On top of this kind of charge, this reminder to pray, we we need to be reminded that this is hard for us. We are people who who, who struggle with silence, don't we? It's just, it's weird. We're so uh, inundated, overstimulated, that any thought of silence is just awkward. You see how awkward you feel? And we, we get silence, and we're like, we start getting, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Maybe I should check my email, jump on Instagram, and just, you know, 
We, we can't sit in silence. We can't stop and slow our lives down and breathe a little bit and, and begin to step back and find rest for our souls and go to God for what we need and call upon Him to do what we cannot. But you see, church, striving like this, this kind of prayer, this kind of, of laborsome prayer, this always arises from a burden. That's why crises drive us to our knees. Do you realize that? I mean, you never pray like you do when you're in a crisis. Isn't that true? When everything just goes crazy, when you get that, that tragic phone call, when you've gone to the doctors and you're waiting the results, when something painful has gone on in your life, you fall to your knees and you pray like you've never prayed before. We need to see, church, how critical things really are in the world around us. What's at stake? What is the burden that should drive us? The burden is simple. It is souls of lost people, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, people who, who listen, are walking around spiritually dead, and, and they have no hope because they are without God in this world, and nobody has ever, ever taken the time and loved them enough to simply tell them the truth, that they are dead in their sins, they're lost and alienated from God, but, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Church, we need a burden for those who are perishing in their sins and will spend eternity in hell paying for their sins. We have in Jesus Christ the words of eternal life. And we must pray, God send me. God give me opportunities. God save them. God give me courage. God give me boldness. Strive in prayer, Christian. Lastly, what do we pray? I think we learn here from Paul that specifics in prayer are important. He's not afraid to ask for specific things. I wonder if we see few answers to prayer because we pray so generally. We're so ambiguous. And he's looking for very specific things. We've already covered them. We aren't asking for anything really specific, I think, oftentimes, because we aren't really thinking deeply or carefully about what we want to do for God or what God wants to do through us. Paul had gospel dreams and gospel ambitions, and listen, church, ambitions precede actions. What is it that you want God to do in you? What are you ambitious for spiritually? What, what is it that God, you want him to produce in you, to change in you? What kind of sin do you want him to root out of you? What kind of fruit of the Spirit do you want him to birth in you? What are you ambitious about personally for the Lord? What is it that you want God to do through you where is your ambition? Who is it that you believe God has called you to reach, you to share the gospel with? What ministry may God be placing on your heart, creating in you this desire for? Are you becoming ambitious about the things of the Lord? And are you then acting upon those by calling out to Him in prayer and by walking in faith? Paul prays his plans will come to fruition, but he knows that God's will be, will be done. Listen, at the end of the day, all of our ambitions, all of our desires must fall under the umbrella of not my will be done, but your will be done. And Paul concludes his prayer with these words in verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He is the God of peace. He holds the universe in the palm of his hands. He directs all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the God of peace because He is the God of our salvation. Whether we live or die, 
we are the Lord's. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace was achieved by Christ's atoning work on the cross. It is the reason we have peace, the reason we have access in prayer. In Christ, the sinful failings of our best actions aren't rejected by an angry judge, but accepted by a loving Father. In Christ, we draw near to God with comfort and confidence. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Father, we pray, thanking you for this peace, thanking you for this ministry of the gospel, and God, recognizing that apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, we pray that like Paul, we would have this ministry mindset. We would see that you have called us into your service. God, I pray for these these people, your people, that you would fill their hearts with the gospel ambition that you would mobilize them as a church, that you would keep them on mission. Lord, wherever you have scattered them as they leave this place, may they be faithful to you. May they view whatever is in front of them as an opportunity to stay on mission and to be in ministry for you. God, I pray that you would bless them as they do this, strengthen them for the task. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.